You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For September 18th, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nolder. Well, it's our fourth anniversary, and I'm as surprised as anyone that we've made it this far. But our audience continues to grow steadily, and you all keep sending me amazing emails with your feedback and suggestions for future shows, while universities, corporations, and other organizations continue to take us up on our great deals on bulk subscriptions and site licenses. So on behalf of the whole XE Network team, thank you to our awesome subscribers who have made this show possible. Speaking of which, let me just take a moment here to welcome our latest site licensee, the University of Virginia. We're thrilled that all the students, faculty, and staff of that fine institution can now enjoy our whole catalog of full episodes. And as always, if you are interested in arranging a site license for your company or academic institution, it's really easy. Just go to our group subscription page at energytransitionshow.com slash group options and give us some basic information. It only takes a minute and we'll get a custom quote off to you right away. Now, as our longtime listeners know, since this is an anniversary show, that can only mean one thing, that it's time to welcome back Jonathan Kumey. As is our tradition, we'll be using the occasion to have a little freewheeling chat about some of the interesting developments and raucous debates that we've seen over the past year. We'll be talking about the flawed concept of committed emissions and how we should be calculating future emissions instead. We'll expand that discussion and critique the conflicting stories that we've been hearing about the expectations for coal usage and emissions in India. We'll review some of the efforts to execute so-called just transitions in coal country. We'll take a little excursion into a recent raging dialogue on Twitter about RCP 8.5, which had its genesis in the PhD thesis of our producer, Justin Ritchie, which we explored in episode 49. We'll move on from there to discuss the communications challenges around climate change science and what's wrong with the kind of hysterical journalism being practiced by writers like David Wallace Wells in his book, The Uninhabitable Earth. We'll take a look at John's latest research on the energy demands of Bitcoin mining. We'll consider the rapid deployment of utility-scale storage and what that might mean for the future of the grid. We'll review John's update of global energy intensity data and ask what it all means. And we'll wrap it up with another look at the energy transition modeling work of Christian Breyer's team at Lappenranta University of Technology in Finland, which we explored in episode 95. It's a big old grab bag of energy transition fun, so let's just dive right into our anniversary chat with Jonathan Kumi, recorded August 21st, 2019. So let's bring him back into the conversation. Welcome back, John, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. You know, to our listeners, it must feel like you were just on the show because it was actually (laughs) just a few weeks ago that we aired the fireside chat that you and I recorded at Stanford Energy Week back in January. I got to say, I really enjoyed that chat. We covered a lot of ground. Yeah, that was a fun talk. 
And our mutual thanks, I think, to Stanford Energy Week and to Jeff Scott Rutherford for making it all happen for us to be there. Yeah, and we got some good questions from it too, so I thought it was really worthwhile. We did. Plus, I really loved going out for beers with the whole Stanford Energy Week club afterwards. That was super fun. All those yeah, guys. It was nice to meet some of the Twitter gang in person. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> but they have a lot of really smart students there that are just on fire about such interesting things, and I just loved hearing their ideas. Yeah, Stanford is really a hotbed of dangerously interesting work. So as I look back over some of the significant developments in energy transition over the past year, one thing that really jumped out at me early on is the early retirement of thermal power plants, not just in the U.S., where I think the rapid retirement of coal and gas and even some nuclear plants has been well publicized, but also just around the world. But that news doesn't seem to have reached the climate modeling community. For example, in a letter in an August 2019 edition of Nature, the authors asserted that fossil-fueled power plants will emit enough CO2 over their lifetimes to exceed our climate targets, what they called committed future CO2 emissions. But as Laurie Millivirta of Greenpeace pointed out on Twitter, the authors essentially assume that there is some firm lifetime for a power plant and that the emissions from all known plants today will continue at some level throughout that lifetime. But in reality, what we're seeing is a lot of power plants are retiring early, and even the ones that haven't been shut down are running less often. In energy lingo, their load factors are falling. In fact, the emissions projected by these authors aren't committed at all. In fact, as Laurie pointed out, even in China, coal plants are often closing down now after around 25 years of operation instead of the assumed 40-year lifetime of the plants. There's a lot of plants that were built in the 2000s that are already shutting down because they're losing money. And Laurie linked to a Reuters report from June of this year about how the Tang Group, one of the biggest power generators in China, has had several of its subsidiaries go bankrupt over the past couple of years as they failed to pay up on massive debts. Similarly, General Electric announced in June that it was going to scrap its inland Empire Energy Center, a $1 billion, 750 megawatt combined cycle natural gas fired power plant in Riverside County, California, after only 10 years of operation versus its expected lifespan of 30 years because it couldn't compete against cheaper solar and wind. Another example was the Panda Temple Power Plant, a modern 758 megawatt gas-fired combined cycle power plant in Temple, Texas, which entered service in 2014, began losing money almost immediately, and then went bankrupt in 2017. So, for the record, it emerged from bankruptcy and resumed operations about a year later after a huge debt-for-equity swap. But, in fact, Laurie estimates that the average age of some fossil fuel plant retirements is now actually around 26 years, which is far less than most finance people assume. So, is it time for us to reevaluate our assumptions about future carbon emissions from the power sector globally and what's, in fact, committed well, I think it's important to understand what the term committed refers to. And I think the authors of that study know well that if the plants are shut down early, then of course, you know, those emissions would go away. But I think what they're trying to get at is the issue of whether or not we can still build new fossil infrastructure. And I think the results of that analysis are that really we're at a turning point. So in the next few years, we're going to just have to stop building fossil infrastructure because we don't need more gas plants in the United States, for example. We could do well you know, as we install many more 
clean energy techs in the power system, we can use the existing gas plants as needed for firming up the system and so on. But we don't need a whole heck of a lot more. And so the danger for the people who are doing these investments, of course, is that these economic headwinds are going to get much worse as more and more zero emission sources come into the grid. And I think that it's important to frame the literature on committed emissions in terms of that capital risk. And I feel like the way it was framed in the media, at least, I think was not accurate. I suspect those authors are smart enough to understand the subtleties. But the issue is really stranded asset risk. And we now know that when you think about the climate problem, we're kind of out of room. We can't be building a whole lot more fossil infrastructure at this point if we're going to ramp down emissions to net zero by 2050. Yeah, I think that's an important message for the finance community for sure. But it's also, I think, an important point for climate modelers, right? Because as we've recently discovered, and we'll get to this topic in more depth in a few minutes, there's a lot of assumptions embedded in the climate modeling about what future emissions are going to be. And I think a lot of those assumptions stem from this kind of assumption about future committed emissions. Like, I have not yet seen a climate model that takes into account falling load factors, for example. Right. So there have been some one-off studies of kind of, you'd call it early retirement. I think IEA did this in one or two of their scenarios, and there's been some others who have been playing with it. But the default assumption in most of these models is that there is a lifetime of this equipment and that that lifetime has to elapse before that plant can retire. And that is a rigidity that the models have that actually isn't a real-world rigidity. And as you point out, we're already seeing plants getting retired early, and there's a risk because of the increasing penetration of nearly zero marginal cost resources that a lot of plants that are still even relatively new might get shut down. So that is, I think, something that needs to be addressed by each modeling group, because I think they each have different assumptions about how this works. But in general, the default assumption since the beginning of the modeling community is that these plants have a lifetime. And when the lifetime elapses, then the thing retires. But that's not how it's going to work in the real world, especially when we have the economics of renewables in particular being so good compared to even the operating costs of coal and gas plants. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly true on the early retirement point. But there's also this other point about falling load factors, especially if you listen to people that are very concerned about climate. And they might say, but China just built X number of new coal-fired power plants for over the past year, and those things are going to run for 40 years. And I'm looking at the data saying, no, no, they're not. Not only are they not going to run for 40 years, maybe they're only going to run for 20, but they're not going to run at the 80 90% capacity factors that are assumed in the model. Right. And this is where the economics and financing of these plants becomes very important. And some ways of financing these plants are more or less susceptible to the risk of not running at the assumed capacity factor. And so this gets at the issue, though, that if you have the capital good and you can run it and make money that people will do it. 
if you retire the capital good, it can't run anymore. And so I view these lower capacity factors as kind of a harbinger of retirements. Because what will likely happen is that some of those plants will be retired and then the other ones will have to be ramped up to replace it. The idea of committed emissions, though, is to get at this fundamental issue, the kind of incentive. When you have capital, you want to use it because then you can amortize those fixed costs over more production. And ideally, instead, these things will be shut down and some people are going to lose money for sure. But that's really what has to happen in the kind of medium term. Yeah. I think we really just need to remember to be skeptical whenever we see somebody talk about committed emissions. Because you know, Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I agree. And I wish that the people writing in that literature were a bit more upfront about that particular assumption because I feel like the media folks – they don't really understand the subtlety. No. And the issue is, well, yes, it's committed, but that doesn't mean we're doomed. It just means that a whole bunch of people who invested capital in these dog plants are going to lose a lot of money. And so the political part of it, though, is still relevant, which is, okay, these people are powerful. They're wealthy. So how are they going to fight? How are they going to slow down the transition? Because they don't want to lose money. So that's the thing that I think needs to be put front and center in terms of the political struggle for the energy transition. That's the key issue that the committed emissions raise. Yeah, for sure. And you've brought up another topic, which we probably don't have time to talk about now. But as journalism itself continues to shrink, as the entire sector of journalism continues to shrink, and media that's trying to report actual facts and news, and it's not just entertainment, continues to just sort of fall apart. It becomes harder and harder to have journalists who actually have a deep domain knowledge and who can probe into a study like this and understand the assumptions and elevate those important questions rather than just rewriting the abstract or the executive summary, which is what happens all too often and most recently came up in the discussion of RCP 8.5, which we'll talk about in a minute. But, <laughs> you know, I just, in general, I think we just have a real disconnect here between what people in the financial community and even the modeling community of climate think is happening and what's actually happening in terms of power plant retirements. And I'll put another link in the show notes to a recent thread and an article by Bloomberg journalist David Fickling, who pointed out that India, which many people in banks assume is the world's fastest growing coal market, is also seeing coal falling out of favor. Investment mm. in coal fell 90% last year, he says, with only one new plant getting a loan, and that was backed by the state, whereas yep. private sector investment is overwhelmingly going to wind and solar. Coal yep. generation is already in terminal decline in the US and Europe, he says, and it's probably peaking now in China and is probably at or very close to its peak in India. And so this drying up of financing in India is what he calls the beginning of the end in coal's last redoubt, with as much coal capacity now slated for retirement by 2027 as there is slated for new construction. So yeah. you know, all this information, of course, fits well with the copious data that we heard from Tim Buckley and IEFA in episodes 91 and 93 
in which he details how the debt from many of the state-financed coal power plants is creating a massive drag on the Indian financial sector and its economy as a whole, and how financing for coal plants is just drying up worldwide because they're money losers. I mean, even Japan's environmental minister has announced that he will oppose any new plans to build or expand coal-fired power stations following on the country's cancellation of numerous planned investments in the coal-fired power, as we reported in the news segment of episode 94. And yet, now wait. So in Japan, he's opposing new coal plants in Japan, but Japan is still financing coal plants elsewhere. Yes. And that's part of the issue that I think we should talk about a little bit, which is the finance driven nature of whatever coal plants are remaining in the pipeline. It's not economic driven, it's finance driven. I would agree. And maybe that is also why Fickling points out that the International Energy Agency still sees coal growing by almost 4% per year, and even in India for the next four years, and that even Bloomberg New Energy Finance sees coal-fired generation rising by roughly 50% by 2020. So obviously the financing has to be coming from somewhere. But to your earlier point, there was a recent article in the New York Times titled How One Billionaire Could Keep Three Countries Hooked on Coal for Decades, which featured a close-up on Gautam Adani, the founder of a $14 billion company that owns coal mines, cargo ships, ports, and power plants. And he's insisting that India has no choice but to keep relying on coal. So what do you think is going on here? Is Fickling right or is Adani? Oh, there's of course a choice. And that's the standard tactic of people who want you to go in a certain direction because it's in their interest to go that way. And when the medium term cost of installing solar and wind plants is less than the marginal cost of running coal capacity, I just don't see how anyone can think there's a future for coal. Yeah. And every month we see declines in the cost of solar. And every six months to a year, we see declines in the cost of wind. And so we're now, I think the LBL cost just came out for 2018, I think, for wind generation in the U.S. And with the tax credit, which I think is about 0.6 cents a kilowatt hour nowadays, it's phasing down. But in any case, with the tax credit, it's like two cents per kilowatt hour to build and operate new wind plants. And so let's call it two and a half or three cents. That's still cheaper than running coal plants. Right. And cheaper than running gas plants. So I just don't see that there's an economic driver for this. Even if the subsidies go away. Yeah. You know, the subsidies in the US are phasing down. And I think that that's probably fine and healthy for that industry because at a certain point, they're so cheap that it doesn't matter if there are subsidies. And I think we're just about there. Maybe by 2020 or 2021, that's going to be it. And so I don't see the economic argument for coal at all. And I think that there are, again, there are people with an interest who make money from doing the financing or who make money from supplying the coal and and paying for the transport and so on, who want to perpetuate this myth. But I think it's a completely bogus argument from an economic perspective. I think that even direct economic costs, it's cheaper not to use coal. And as soon as you start counting the societal costs of particulates and sulfur and nitrogen oxides, and climate change and 
coal ash and poison from other aspects of the coal cycle. There's just no economic argument for coal anywhere in the world. Yeah. And I think it's we've reached a stage where it's kind of absurd for people to be making that argument. And so from direct economic cost perspective, it doesn't make sense. From a societal perspective, it really doesn't make sense and hasn't made sense for a very long time. So I feel like part of the lesson from this is we need to root out all of the finance-driven investments in coal and then ultimately in natural gas and oil as well. Because a lot of this, certainly in the coal industry, almost all of it, I think, is finance-driven now. And it relates to what you were saying is that all of the private investment is now going to the renewables because it's much cheaper, the economics are strong, the costs are coming down, but there's still institutions that exist and make money or gain institutional clout by supporting coal plants and gas plants. And we need to root that out. There needs to be protest. There needs to be formal exposure of which institutions are doing that because it's got to stop. We got to stop this. And it clearly isn't economically driven. It's clearly driven by people with an institutional interest in keeping this industry alive. And it just has to stop. We got to get rid of those finance-driven investments. Yeah. I mean, returning to Fickling's point, if only one coal plant actually got a loan in India last year, and that was backed by the state, you have to ask yourself a couple of questions. Like, why did they get a loan from the state? And secondly, why would anyone think that there's a future for coal in India if private capital won't pursue opportunities in the state anymore? And beyond that, if there are, in fact, still financiers in India and China also that are financing coal plants abroad, and we have reason to believe there are, where are those coal plants? And why are they financing them? And what is the attitude of the host government where those plants are being financed? Because, you know, on the flip side of this, I've heard rumblings, even in places like the Philippines, where you have maybe not national government, but lower level government figures saying, whoa, 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 we don't want another coal plant here. We want renewables. Yeah. So I think there needs to be a whole lot more investigations of why these finance-driven investments keep going. I think part of what happened in China is they started to clamp down on coal. And as part of their political negotiations, they said, well, you know, we're going to stop doing as much coal internally, but go ahead and market it out in the world to other countries. And I think you're seeing, particularly in poorer countries, the Chinese come in with lots of money and they want to encourage the use of their industry and their talents and so poor country that doesn't have access to finance to do other things, maybe doesn't have infrastructure to upgrade their power system, is happy to have people come in and do that. But I think from society's perspective, it's a disaster. We shouldn't be installing this new infrastructure, even in poor countries, yeah. because it's more expensive, right? It's going right. to handicap them. Right. And so putting aside the societal costs, which are horrible – and way worse for coal, the direct costs are not going to be cheaper either. Right. So it's a real tragedy that this is happening. And I think that the people who are good at investigations need to figure out all the places where these finance-driven investments are 
popping up and then understand the institutional incentives that lead to those things happening. You can see why the Adani guy wants this to happen because he's got all this infrastructure set up to service the coal industry. Right. So he makes money on the transport. He makes money on the mining. He makes money on cleanup of whatever messes there are. I think he just makes money coming and going. Yeah. But if the whole system starts closing down, then he doesn't make money anymore. Right. And so it's quite clear that his interest is not aligned with what the right choice is for society. Yeah, that's right. I'm fully in agreement with you as far as the question of subsidies in the U.S. I know that there are people in the solar and wind industries in the U.S. that are not ready to see those incentives go away. And in certain markets, there's certainly a reason for that. But as a general matter, if we can imagine those subsidies becoming unnecessary and being fully phased out, which is pretty much on schedule, I think, a couple of years from now, at that point, the whole political game changes because you can't knock wind and solar for needing subsidies anymore. And in fact, yeah, yeah. all the subsidies are now going to have to be flowing to nuclear and coal plants in particular in order to keep them running. And at that point, you're going to have a much different conversation politically in the United States about why we're subsidizing these things. Yep. Yeah. And it becomes focused on the plants that actually have subsidies, right. which is what you want. The other salutary aspect of this is that I think in the U.S. residential solar industry in particular, there's a certain amount of cost that's associated with inefficiency. And it's partly because our approval processes are local and incredibly balkanized and inefficient. But we know from the fact that Australia and Germany have been able to get their costs down significantly that we have a long way to go, like a factor of two to go in the cost of residential solar. Yeah. We already know that Germany and and Australia are able to get the cost down by 50% compared to where we are. So Kenneth Boulding's first law, anything that exists is possible. <laughs> and so I feel like part of what's going to happen as this tax credits phase out is that you're going to see pressure on the inefficient operators and there's going to be a lot more pressure on getting rid of those soft costs and streamlining approvals and dealing with the customer acquisition problem yeah because that's very expensive it can be you know 500 bucks yeah. to get a customer and that's a lot of money on an installation that might be 10,000 it starts to turn into real money on your margin we hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 
$5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. On August 27th, energy journalist Sammy Roth of the Los Angeles Times reported that Los Angeles city officials had caved under pressure from the utilities labor union and declined to approve an offer from 8-Minute Solar Energy to develop a solar plant and sell the city power for under $0.02 cents per kilowatt hour for 25 years. That would be the lowest price ever paid for solar power in the U.S., far below the cost of conventional power from a natural gas-fired power plant. In addition to 400 megawatts of solar power, the Eland project would have included at least 200 megawatts of lithium-ion batteries capable of storing four hours of power. The combined price to LA ratepayers of the Solar Plus storage project would be 3.3 cents per kilowatt hour, also a record low price for that type of contract. Altogether, the plant would generate enough electricity to meet 6 to 7 percent of the city's annual needs. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, or IBEW Local 18 Union, which represents utility employees, opposed the contract because it is apparently unhappy with Mayor Eric Garcetti's decision to shut down three coastal gas plants as a part of his Green New Deal initiative. The gas plants employ more than 400 workers with the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, or LADWP, the municipal utility serving Los Angeles. In response to the article, three L.A. City Council members who read the story sent a letter to the board of LADWP saying they were shocked and dismayed that the solar contract wasn't approved. That was followed by protests staged by various activist groups demanding that the city take the record-setting deal. On September 10th, the LADWP capitulated to the pressure and approved a contract for a version of the project which features a larger 300-megawatt, 1.2-gigawatt-hour battery storage system for 3.962 cents per kilowatt-hour. The additional storage will give the plant a 60% capacity factor, and the plant will be operational by the end of 2023. Item 2. In late July, NextEra Energy Resources, the world's largest operator of wind and solar projects and a subsidiary of the large U.S.-based utility NextEra Energy, announced that it will build the largest hybrid renewable project in the U.S. Slated for completion in 2023, the triple hybrid 700-megawatt scale... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. <laughs>